Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Leaders. I'm Sam North. Inspiration is one of the best ways to transform. Conversations with Leaders is a bi-weekly interview with key industry players, CEOs, financial authors, and professional money managers worldwide. Get valuable insights from the people who've seen it all. Are you ready? Here we go. This podcast is for information and education purposes only and should not be taken as investment advice, a personal recommendation or an offer of or solicitation to buy or sell any financial instruments. This material has been prepared without taking into account any particular recipient's investment objectives or financial situation and has not been prepared in accordance with the legal and regulatory requirements to promote independent research. Past performance is not an indication of future results. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Conversations with Leaders, where you can get valuable insights from successful investors and financial leaders worldwide. My name is Sam North, a market analyst here at eToro, and I'm happy to be your host today. In financial markets, you often hear of buzzwords such as market manipulation, scandals, flash crashes, and spoofing. But what do they mean? How do they happen? And what, as traders, do we need to know about them on our quest for beating the market? Our guest today is Liam Vaughan, who has worked at Bloomberg for over a decade, reporting on some of the most fascinating stories from financial markets. Along with various awards for his work, he has written two books, The Fix and Flash Crash. So for for today's subject, he is the perfect guest. Liam, welcome to Conversation with Leaders. Hi, Sam. Great to be here. Amazing. And and you're you're logging in from from London, is that right? That's correct. I'm in uh, having some renovations done to my house, so I'm opposite my house, uh, somebody <laughs> else's house in in uh, South London near Greenwich at the moment. My young children have been carted out, so you know it shouldn't be too much disruption. We can have a good chat. Amazing. Looking forward to it. I mean, we'll we'll talk about your your latest book, which came out a couple of years ago, um, shortly, three years ago. But just before we get on to it, and, and for our audience, I think it'd be quite useful for you to explain what spoofing is. I mean, newer traders, of which over the last few years, there has been a lot. We've seen a big rise in the sort of the retail trader, the retail investor. They may not have heard of that term. So for you, what is it? What does it involve? Yeah, so spoofing is... Uh a type of trading that basically involves placing orders uh, that you don't intend to actually execute, um, usually with the aim of kind of moving the market in a manipulative way. Um, so I don't know how common your your listeners um, will be with the order book um, or this, uh, there's like a screen that a lot of traders and, you know, retail traders as well use. It's called depth of market. Yeah. Um, but for those who aren't, it's, it's essentially like a, a kind of large, constantly moving Excel spreadsheet, which shows all the bids and offers that are coming into the market at different price points. Um, you know, so a lot of traders, very short term based traders and, partic- you know, particularly algorithmic traders. So the whole field of HFT really is geared around looking at that order book and seeing, you know, who's just placed an offer to buy, who's placed, an, you know, a, a bid to sell. Um, and how is that likely to impact upon the price? Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? Um, and so spoofing is essentially where you 
place orders into the order book that are designed to move the market or to you know trick your competitors mm -hmm. that something's about to happen, and then you pull your order before it actually gets hit. So I can give you a you know very straightforward example. You know, if you imagine that the current best bid in a stock or a you know a future is a hundred dollars, and you suddenly decide that you're going to place a hundred million dollars worth of sell orders at like a hundred and two dollars. Well, anyone that's looking at that market, and particularly these kind of algos, will see that and think, "Wow, you know, there's suddenly a huge amount of supply in the market. Mm -hmm. The market's bound to fall. I'm going to get ahead of that myself, and I'm going to start selling." And then the market sort of reacts to that that big block of sell orders by falling, and then the spoofer will pull his you know big block of sell orders, having achieved his goal of pushing the market down a couple of ticks. Um, and just, you know, more generally, spoofing is, is something that's quite controversial because until 2011, it wasn't even illegal. Mm. Um, and a lot of people think, well, hang on a minute, you know, trading is this kind of game and nobody's really honest. You know, you're trying to get your, uh, your trades away uh, at the best possible price for you and it's a competition. So why shouldn't you be allowed to, to kind of bluff? Mm. But that's not how the government sees it. The government, you know, has introduced quite stringent rules saying you cannot do that. And, and you know, as we've seen and as we'll talk about with, with the NAV story, they've actually criminally charged a bunch of people for doing just that. Yeah. And then, you, as you mentioned, since 2011, it's been illegal. But for us as retail traders, if we decide we want to get into a trade and then 10 minutes later, we actually think, you know what? Wrong time. That's not illegal. Just to to clear that up for for no. people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't want to scare you know scare scare your your listeners. It's you know it's, it's absolutely fine to change your mind. Yeah. But if they've got evidence of you saying I'm going to place this massive sell order and then cancel it, then you might be in trouble. But you know to be to, to be clear, it only really works if you've got a huge amount of money behind you. Um, you know, you placing a, a, you know ten lots or whatever isn't isn't really going to isn't going to impact the, the huge liquidity in a lot of these markets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, another point for us to set the scene then is about sort of general market manipulation. You know, how would you describe it? Is it as simple as sort of a tweet from a popular figure like Elon Musk or is it brokers selling order flow or is it literally all of the above and more? Yeah, so market manipulation has got a spe you know, specific definition uh, on, you know, within the law in different countries um spoofing i guess is, an, is a type of market manipulation where you know the definition is essentially where you're looking to artificially cause prices to rise or fall outside of normal supply and demand mm. um and it could take different forms so you know a very common one that you you know that people have heard of is is the sort of classic pump and dump yeah. So like, you know, Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, gets a load of people to phone up and say, hey, this stock's about to blow up because, you know, they found some new wonder drug or whatever it is. Uh, and suddenly all these, you know, uh, all these people start buying the stock. You've already bought it. You know that it's all built on lies. You get out and, and uh, you know, as soon as the, the rest of the world catches up with you, the, the stock tanks, but you've already made your money. Um so that's one form of manipulation. Another form of manipulation might be where, you know, three traders that have got a significant size within a certain market are actually talking on like WhatsApp about what they're planning to do and how they're going to move the market. Um, you know, so that's kind of 
would be considered collusion. Um, I mean, you talk about Elon Musk, you know, he's a really interesting example because he is so powerful that anything that he tweets has the power (laughs) to move markets. Um, the only way that I, you know, I can see that it would fall under the kind of statute of, of, of an offense is if there was evidence that he knew in advance, for example, that he was going to sell a huge amount of shares in Twitter, in a, you know, Twitter or yeah. Tesla or whatever. And so he decides to uh, pump the market up by saying something that, you know, is spurious. And then he gets out and sells his $3 billion worth of stock or something. Um, so that could be considered market manipulation, but it's a really hard offense to actually make stick. Mm. Um, and, you know, in my job, I speak to a lot of uh, investigators and like the SEC and the CFTC. And, and these cases are really hard because even though you might suspect somebody's, you know, done something manipulative to actually prove by using evidence that they intended to move the market and that they didn't really think the price was going that way anyway is really, really hard. Yeah, no, I can imagine that. And then speaking of of Elon Musk, I know there's a fair few traders that I know that will use Twitter or TweetDeck and have alerts every time Elon Musk tweets because he has the power to move the market, whether it's just him tweeting about a certain you know cryptocurrency or or Tesla, for example. So they want to be aware when he tweets, I need to know about it. Um, moving on then, and for, for anyone listening to this or, or watching this, I absolutely encourage everyone to, to go and read or listen. I actually listened to the book, but I got this from my dad. Um, Liam's book called Flash Crash, which focuses on, on Nav, AKA the Hound of Houndslow. Um, how did you hear about Nav? And can you explain to those who don't know, who haven't read the book or heard about it, how he became famous in the world of trading? Yeah, so Navinda Sarau was a kid from Hounslow, which is kind of northwest London, pretty modest upbringing. Um, you know, his parents were Indian, lives in a kind of suburban semi and decided when he was about 21 that he wanted to be a trader. Didn't really have the grades, didn't have the kind of connections and the, you know, all the things that may be required to get a job at one of the major investment banks or whatever. So he decided to be a a retail trader, and he mm. applied for a job that was in the Evening Standard newspaper, which literally said, you know, wanted wannabe traders, uh, you know, apply within. And he got this job at a place called Futex, which I don't know if you've seen the start of The Wolf of Wall Street, yes. <laughs> where it's in like this, you know, in the middle of nowhere, and there's all these kind of like eccentric characters all coming together. It's a bit like that. Wow. Um, and, you know, they sort of teach you to trade and they give you a bit of capital but it's really hard and there's a high turnover and most of them don't make it. But Nav does. He's brilliant. He's got these uh, amazing kind of uh, memory recall and he's he's a natural kind of mathematician. He could do, do all this kind of arithmetic in his head. But beyond that, he's got this kind of weird personality where he really doesn't seem to care if he wins or loses or at least financially it doesn't bother him. He's got an amazing threshold for taking on risk. So, you know, to, to, to kind of fast forward in the story, he... Uh, is very successful, makes a large amount of money. Nobody knows who the hell this guy is. And then in 2015, suddenly he gets arrested, uh, you know, from his parents' uh, suburban semi in Hounslow. And suddenly he's the hound of Hounslow. Um, and he's all over the newspapers. And he's accused of essentially his trading contributed to this really dramatic event in financial markets history, which was the 2010 flash crash um, when... 
over the course of like half an hour, the market tanked by 9%. If you can imagine the S&P uh, 500 tanked by 9%, which is a trillion dollars. Um, and then weirdly, it just kind of bounced back again. Uh, and nobody really knew exactly what had happened. It caused a lot of uh, consternation about the rise of algorithmic trading. Mm. Was this going to happen all the time now? And so suddenly in 2015, five years later, this kid who's still in his 20s gets arrested at his mum and dad's house uh, and essentially blamed by the US government for, for contributing towards it. Um, and everyone's like, huh? Like, <laughs> really? This guy? Um, and, and so that was kind of the, uh, the reason that he, he, he became famous uh, and, and the reason he became the focus of Flash Crash, my book. Yeah, and, and I, I seriously do recommend everyone to go to read and listen. It's a fascinating story. Uh, when when sort of working with with Nav and interviewing him and all of this, well, what interested you most about him? You know, I mean, he was clearly also, by the way, an unbelievable trader. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of one of the tragedies, really, of of Nav is that he's sort of renowned for this, uh, you know, this illegal act of. Uh, spoofing and, and being arrested and yeah. being this kind of like rogue trader, if you like. But actually, he was a brilliant trader in his own right. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully people that read the book will get that sense that, you know, actually it was a, kind of he didn't have to go this path. He could have still yeah. made a huge amount of money if he hadn't. Um, but, you know, just to kind of fill people in, essentially he had several years where he, uh, you know, starts out with not, literally nothing and, you know, within the space of a few years, he builds it up into uh, like $11 million um, just through his own trading. But around the kind of 2007, 2008 period, he starts to get frustrated about the arrival of high-frequency traders mm. into the market. He kind of feels that, you know, his, his edge in scalping the market very short term is being usurped by these robots. And he also thinks that they're sort of cheating because they're constantly cancelling <laughs> orders, you know. And and the amazing thing is, like, a lot of people, when they get arrested, turn around and say this stuff. But he actually, believed. you know, the, yeah, he really believed it. And he would write to the CFTC and the CME and say, hang on a minute, like, the markets aren't fair anymore. So at some point, he makes this very fateful decision that he's going to build an algorithm of his yeah. own. Uh, in true kind of NAV style, he calls it NAV trader. Um, and he writes to this guy uh, who to build him an algo. And essentially what it does is it places these vast sell orders into the market. Uh, and then as soon as anyone gets close or as soon as there's any chance it's going to get hit, they get pulled. And NAV simultaneously is trading manually around this kind of uh, spoofing machine. Um, and he, you know, and, he, and he's very, very successful uh, until he gets blamed for the flash crash. Um, I mean, in terms of, you know, why I was so fascinated by the story, there's, there's a couple of things. One is just like Nav himself is is a really fascinating individual. Like doing my job, you have a lot of trading scandals, but usually they're people, you know, in pinstripe suits or, you know, <laughs> people that are working at an investment bank or they're like real uh, crooks, you know, Ponzi schemers, that kind of thing. But Nav isn't that. Like if you can picture this kid who lives at home with his parents, when he's not trading, he's playing FIFA <laughs> or he's playing with his niece, <laughs> badminton in the garden. Uh, and he used to show up to meetings in like with a Tesco's plastic bag. Um, and 
he, you know, the most amazing thing and one of the biggest mysteries of the story is that he didn't spend yeah. almost any of the monies. So he didn't buy a flash car. He didn't, you know, buy a mansion. He didn't even tell his parents. So when he get, gets arrested, they're kind of oblivious. Uh, and he's got $70 million you know, <laughs> that he's accumulated. So, like, there's this great mystery there. Like, who the hell is this individual? It's so unusual. Um, but then beyond that, the story had this kind of really fascinating David and Goliath element to it, which is that, you know, this was around the time that Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, came out. Yeah. Um, and it really kind of highlighted some of the methods of high-frequency traders uh, and how they'd essentially got a lock on the markets. Um, and... You know, there was a lot of people asking questions about whether that was ethical or, you know, what the impact was that was going to have. And then you had this guy who had taken it upon himself to try and fight back. Um, and he did it. You know, it worked. And and it was it was kind of amazing. And then he, you know, and then and then he gets taken down. And so there was that kind of sense of like, well, is he this kind of criminal that he's being painted as, or is he a bit of a kind of Robin Hood figure? Yeah. Or is it somewhere in between? Um, you know, so there was, there was all these elements that kind of elevated it beyond just a, a story about a financial scandal to something really, uh, really kind of cinematic and, and, and fascinating, I think. Yeah. Remarkable story. I mean, how, how common are these types of stories? I know this is very specific and about an individual, but, you know, marketing manipulation, spoofing, how, how often are these, whether it be individuals or groups, or are they actually very isolated and rare? I mean, you know, the Nav story was remarkable because of him. Uh, yeah. And I don't think you're going to see many examples of that again. Uh, but in terms of um, market manipulation and spoofing, that kind of stuff was incredibly common. You have had a real clampdown, um, particularly in the US, and it's gone beyond, you know, the kind of Navs of this world to, uh, you know, JP Morgan's entire metals yeah. desk. Uh, you know, was criminally charged. A load of, you know, hedge funds like Jump have all been, uh, you know, uh, charged and, and done and, and, you know, paid fines for, for spoofing. So there's a sense that, you know, you know, the way that I would look at it is that the regulator is always one step behind. And spoofing was the crime of the day back then. And the regulator gets a hold of it. And it's quite easy to see in the data uh, you know, what a spoof looks like. So they bring all these cases and they probably close that down. But what happens is the markets are incentivized by very clever people um, who are creative. And so, so the type of uh, manipulation will change uh, and the regulators will probably catch up with that. But there's a constant like cat and mouse element to it, I think. Um, and... Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's, I, I do think it's a really fascinating one. The extent to which you know it's 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 the responsibility of the regulators and the government to make sure markets are completely clean. Yeah. Or to what extent that that's like a fool's errand anyway, and that you know um, it should be sort of caveat emptor. And if you're going to enter the market, that's just the game that you're playing. Yeah, I don't know what you think. Yeah, yeah. No, I I'd, I'd I'd be with you. I mean, to, to the, the it'd be very wishful thinking, wouldn't it, for it to be a hundred percent clean? There's always going to be bad actors out there, and I think yes. you you almost 
you know, by getting involved in the market, you almost just accept that anyway. But yes, well, yeah, I'm sure there's there's more to come on that. And and also, let's just cast our mind back to another story. So April 2020, oil futures went negative, which is absolutely baffling to say out loud, uh, and it sent the whole financial world into frenzy. Uh, and actually, I was sat here and I was trading um, futures markets, but thankfully not oil. Because I definitely <laughs> would have lost money that day. Twitter went berserk. Um, you know, chat rooms that I was in were going crazy. Um, and then, you know, you know, a story then emerged from that uh, that group of oil traders from Essex, I believe it was, wasn't they? They made over six hundred million pound. You know, you wrote about this last year. Um, can you explain to our audience a little bit about this story? Because it's, I mean, Liam, it's absolutely wild. Yeah, so so I said these stories don't come up very often, but <laughs> here we are talking about another one. But this one was just as crazy, and it's got a lot in common with it. So in April 2020, it was two months into COVID. Yeah. The world is essentially going into lockdown. There's all this oil, and no one's really using it. Um, and so oil prices naturally are falling significantly. So I think they start the year at $60, and they're down to about $20 by April. Um and in oil futures, there's something called a monthly settlement. So if you want to take a long-term position in oil, you've got to keep buying futures every month and then selling them before the month end. And there's this thing called rolling. Uh, and so it's like a technical thing that happens in markets that you have to be aware of if you're trading. Um, but what it meant was, as well as these sort of macro factors that were uh, depressing the price of oil, there was this thing happening on April 20th that was going to, add to the selling pressure because all these people have bought these, uh, you know, the near month futures and they're going to have to sell it. Um, and everyone knew that was going to be a huge amount of selling over a short period of time. So all this combines to create this crazy set of uh, events uh, that cause the WTI futures to go from $20 in a few hours to $0 and then to actually plummet completely and close the market at minus 38 um, and so immediately the regulators come out and say, look, this was a one-off. This is nothing to see here. It's all COVID-related. Um, but, I, you know, doing the job that I've, I've been doing, you know, for, for the length of time that I have, you've developed sources at, at uh, you know, at the, at the government and the regulators, and, and I got wind that essentially there was this whole other story that nobody was had reported yet, which was that this tiny firm in Essex called Vega Capital, Mm-hmm. had made, as you say, I think it was $650 million in a few yeah. hours that day. Um, and so we started looking into it. And, like, and, and that was, again, a similar situation where, you know, first you think, oh, it must be a hedge fund. And then you realize that it's a bunch of day traders. And they're all, they're, they're led by this guy called Cuddles, <laughs> who's this br- brilliant character, used to be in the pits, you know, Love real it. kind of Essex boy, uh, you know, big house in Thaden Boyce, goes to West Ham, loves Marbella and just, a, you know, <laughs> a, a lad really. And he's built this or he's he works with a bunch of trainers that are all his kids. His, he's got a son, his son's friends uh, and, you know, his friend's kids. And they're all in their 20s. And that day, all of these young guys, as well as these older guys that are ex-pits, made all this money, like $50 million here. This young kid made $100 million. Um, And so, you know, it's a great story. It could have been a story about um, what a brilliant bunch of traders they are, and a lot of people see it like that. 
But the regulators, when they looked at their trading activity, were concerned or suspected that they might have colluded to manipulate the market. Um, and so basically they bought all these contracts that are called um, trade at settlement. And it basically means that you, you're agreeing to pay whatever the price is at 2.30 this afternoon. So it might sound weird to you like because you've got no control over that. Um, but essentially what they managed to do is uh, is um, buy a vast amount of contracts to, uh, at whatever the price was at 2.30. And then yeah. throughout the day, they all individually sold vast, vast quantities of oil futures and, and effectively helped push the market lower. Um, and, you know, they ended up making all this money because they'd sold, you know, $20 or, you know, $10 and then $5, but they yeah. bought at minus 38. Um, so it was a complete white whale. They could have never predicted that. But yeah. the argument is, did they deliberately set out to take advantage of this quirk in the market structure of oil to try and exacerbate what was already happening and, and make some money and that's still an open question um like they made all this money you know one of them bought a, a, a ferrari and it's got like a racing team <laughs> one of them moved to argentina and took up polo amazing uh so they were enjoying you know the the spoils but there is this kind of uh case in the u.s where they're essentially being sued by people uh, and a lot of like text messages and stuff have come out of that, uh, which have, don't look great for them. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's a fascinating one. And I don't know where it's going to end up, whether they're going to have to give the money back, whether they're going to be in tr trouble even worse than that with the criminal authorities or whether they're going to walk off into the sunset is, is an unanswered question. Yeah, I know which one they prefer. And I imagine you've got some people thinking genius, some people you think, you know, you yes. know, criminal and it'd be how that comes up. I mean, you know, there's a section on, on your website called journalism. Uh, and I think, and I generally believe this, Netflix need to take a look at all of those stories <laughs> and get going with a bit of a series, like a short series. It'd be amazing for people to watch. You know, what are your, your favourite stories? I mean, is it the two we've just gone through? Um, you know, or are there others out there? And, and Liam, do you live for the chaos that happens every now and then? <laughs> the, the thing I think that, that's helped me be successful doing this is that I uh, really love the stories and the characters and, you know, behind every great road trading story is the story of like somebody who's turned up for work and it's all gone wrong and like, yeah. or, you know, the nav thing, it's like what drives these people and how do they end up in these really extreme situations? You know, even like con artist type stories, it's like, well, how yeah. do you get to the point where you're totally comfortable lying to all the people around you? Uh, and that sort of psychological element really fascinates me. So I think that the stories that, you know, where there's both this kind of techie trading element, which I really love and love trying to work out. Because a lot of times you go into these markets and stores, you, you just don't understand it. So it's a bit of a mm. kind of mystery uh, that you need to unravel. But then beyond that, they need to have that element of, of the kind of drama of, of the characters. Um, I mean, the one story that stands out and I don't think will ever be surpassed in, in my career uh, and there was a large amount of luck to it, is that in 2013, I think it was, me and some colleagues wrote this story basically saying that the foreign exchange market was uh, being essentially 
gamed by a group of traders that worked for like there was four or five firms it was like barclays ubs deutsche bank Mm. um one other and they had a chat room and they called it geniuses that they were the cartel (laughs) um and on it they would you know ahead of like 4 30 every day which was this crucial settlement period they would discuss what they had and what they were going to trade um and we wrote this story basically saying there's this chat room. We didn't know who was in it. We didn't know it was called the cartel. But we just said this happens and lots of people think it's dodgy and this is how it works. And we didn't hear anything. And then six months later, there's an announcement from the US Justice Department that they're, they're doing an investigation. And fast forward like three years and these firms were, were fined $10 billion. Um, so, you know, it was one of those where we had a great story, but we didn't know how good it was. And it was yeah. only after the event that it turned out to be what it was. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's, that was a good one. Yeah. Netflix, get on it, get on it right now because <laughs> I need to see all of that. Um, final uh, question. I mean, look, we've covered spoofing, market manipulation, crashes, it, you know, some stories about incredible individuals and groups. Do you think these events will continue for years to come or are we getting closer to a stage where they are going to be a lot more infrequent? How do you see it? I mean, one of the fascinating things about the flash crash is that everyone thought that this was like a sign of things to come and that Mm. now that everything was so automated and the trading was happening like a flick of of an eye and, uh, you know, it was far too quick for anyone to sort of really police that that was this huge era of danger within the markets. And actually, it hasn't quite worked out like that. Like there's been isolated crashes um, and they're quite frequent but nothing of, of that scale. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think logically speaking, it would seem that the more kind of correlated a system becomes and the more complex it becomes, the harder it is to police. And that's certainly yeah. one of the facets of the 2008 crisis, wasn't it? Mm. Um, you know, whether you had like derivatives that are feeding into, you know, CDSs and all, all these different types of financial instruments that had these correlations that, that people didn't quite grasp until it was too late um so you know it's a long-winded way of saying that i think there's always the potential and there always will be um crashes whether it will be on the on the same scale as the flash crash i don't know um and in terms of spoofing and manipulation and stuff i 100 percent guarantee that that's going on um <laughs> you know to a greater or lesser extent right now just because there's an incentive to do it yeah you know yeah. wherever there's huge financial incentives and an opportunity there's always some people they're willing to you know to take that risk yeah and and i guess on the flip side the silver lining of that is if for any individual who loses a trade you've got an easy excuse oh someone was spoofing someone was manipulating so following on from that and actually one final uh, question here um as retail traders and investors how can we or how can they you know, almost avoid these spoofing tactics, these market manipulation tactics. How can we, you know, when we go about our trading, investing, you know, be aware of that all? Yeah, so I'd say a couple of things. One is that um, these issues, particularly spoofing, are particularly of a concern if you're trading very, very short term. Like if Mm. you're getting in and out of markets multiple times in an hour, then you're likely to be witnessing and potentially on the other side of spoofing. If uh, you're taking a position in, a, you know, in, in a stock because you've had a look and you decide that you think that there's good value there, then you know my honest advice is that 
uh, you shouldn't worry too much about it. You know, you're talking about very, very small differences in terms of at the price level at which you're entering the market. Um, but more broadly, um, I would just say that, you know, if there are things that are happening in terms of price movements or in terms of the order book that make you uncomfortable, that look suspicious or look unusual, then, um, you know, possibly there's a reason for that. And just just to be cautious of that and to, you know, to, to make a decision as to whether the trade that you want to place has to be at this exact moment. Um, you know, because there's always time, there's always time to enter and, and, and exit that trade. And, and if things don't look and smell right at that moment, then um, trust your instinct and, 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 you know, put it off, do it tomorrow. If in doubt, sit it out, I guess could be the, yes. uh, the summary of that. Uh, Liam, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to have you on. I'm sure our listeners have found that incredibly useful. And again, just one last plug from me for your book. Go read it, go listen to it, people. It's an amazing, amazing story. Liam, thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. Pleasure. You have been listening to Digest and Invest by eToro. For more information, use eToro.com.